Christina has already walked you through the definition and epidemiology of NAFLD and NASH, along with the pathophysiology, natural history, and associated morbidity and mortality. And now it's my task to help you put it all together in terms of how to identify at-risk patients in your clinic, and once identified, where to go from there. Working in hepatology, as much as I would like to say it's all about the liver, NAFLD is really part of a metabolic disease cluster, which is supported by its strong links to obesity, insulin resistance, and type 2 diabetes, hyperlipidemia, and hypertension. A growing body of evidence also points towards the associated risk for cardiovascular disease and chronic kidney disease. Patients with NAFLD have a shorter life expectancy than their healthy counterparts and a higher risk of developing one or more metabolic comorbidities, especially after the age of 50. So it's not just about the liver. When trying to pinpoint patients at risk for NAFLD in our clinics, we need look no further than conditions that are often associated with metabolic syndrome. Most commonly, we think of obesity, type 2 diabetes, hyperlipidemia, and hypertension. In addition to those commonly associated conditions, multiple endocrine conditions are also linked to NAFLD, including hypothyroidism, hypogonadism, and hypopituitarism. Obstructive sleep apnea can also induce non-alcoholic fatty liver disease through increasing insulin resistance, dyslipidemia, and inflammation. Psoriasis is a chronic inflammatory immune-mediated skin disease which has also been shown in multiple studies to be associated with NAFLD. Also, polycystic ovarian syndrome is associated with insulin resistance, which we know is a driver of NAFLD. Women with PCOS are four times as likely to have NAFLD as those without. Colleagues often rely on elevated AST-ALT as an indicator of patients at risk for NAFLD. However, as you know, liver enzymes can be completely normal even in patients with advanced liver disease. Therefore, focusing on overall metabolic health is far more important when identifying patients at risk. On the right side of the slide is the definition of metabolic syndrome. I don't want you to get into the weeds as far as the listed parameters because they can differ slightly depending on which guidance you are looking at, but metabolic syndrome is defined by the presence of three or more of the listed features, including obesity, elevated triglycerides, decreased HDL cholesterol, hypertension, and impaired fasting glucose. Now let's look at the relationship between NAFLD, type 2 diabetes, and metabolic syndrome. It's a dysfunctional relationship at best, and we can point a finger both ways because the risk association is bidirectional. If you look in the center of the slide, you can see patients with NAFLD, NASH, and liver fibrosis are 2.2 times increased risk for developing type 2 diabetes or metabolic syndrome. Those with diabetes or metabolic syndrome have a two to six times increased risk for fatty liver disease, including NASH and liver fibrosis. On the right side of the slide, there's a two times increase in patients with NAFLD for cardiovascular disease and a 1.5 times increased risk for chronic kidney disease. And let's not forget about hepatocellular carcinoma. There's a 10 to 100 times increase in risk for patients with NAFLD and advanced fibrosis for HCC. In fact, the increase in prevalence of HCC and chronic liver disease is largely driven by the increase in patients with non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. 
When we look at the other side of the slide on the left, those patients with type 2 diabetes and metabolic syndrome have a 0.5 to 2 times risk of cardiovascular disease and a 2.5 to 3.5 times increased risk of chronic kidney disease. So there's definitely an association between NAFLD and NASH and the risk of developing multiple extrahepatic complications. The magnitude of the risk is linked to severity of disease, particularly the stage of fibrosis. So let's move on to identifying patients at risk for NAFLD. This can be as easy as looking in your waiting room because, as you know, one in four patients have fatty liver disease. We can, however, be a little more sophisticated when it comes to identifying patients with NAFLD. We now have multiple non-invasive modalities by which to identify and monitor patients with NAFLD, from simple evaluation scores available to everyone and calculated with common blood tests and patient demographics, to more sophisticated imaging techniques, to proprietary biomarkers. All can be of value in identifying and risk stratifying patients with NAFLD. Let's take a look at evaluation scores. Evaluation scores are easily calculated with online calculators using information from standard liver tests like the CBC and CMP and patient data, so readily available to nearly every provider. Most commonly used is the FIB4 and to a lesser degree, the NAFLD fibrosis score and the APRI score. FIB4 has the most validated data it's recognized by the guidelines as a clinically useful tool in identifying patients with a higher probability of F3, F4 fibrosis. We'll move on to imaging techniques beyond liver biopsy because finally we're getting away from invasive liver biopsies in helping us risk stratify NASH patients. Of course, we have the conventional ultrasound. Historically, we've used ultrasound to identify patients with steatosis. It's readily available and it's inexpensive. Oftentimes, this is how patients arrive in our office. They show up in the emergency department with abdominal pain or a trauma. They have imaging and incidentally, steatosis is noticed and a referral is sent to hepatology for further evaluation. We can still rely on conventional ultrasound if we don't have more advanced imaging techniques. MR technology is the next step above ultrasound. It's probably the best modality for accurately detecting and quantifying steatosis, whether it be by PDFF for quantifying steatosis or MR elastography for detecting and quantifying fibrosis. We also have MR technology, which estimates inflammation. It's the most accurate imaging modality that we have. However, use is limited due to access and cost. Finally, we have vibration-controlled transient elastography. The most commonly used transient elastography is the FibroScan. There's other commercially available machines, but FibroScan has the most widely used and validated information. And it measures both steatosis by means of controlled attenuation parameter and liver stiffness to estimate fibrosis. Lastly, we now have the availability of proprietary serum tests. Currently, Pro-C3 and NIS-4 are awaiting FDA approval. 
but we do have the enhanced liver fibrosis test or the ELF test, which gained FDA approval in late 2021 with authorization as a prognostic tool for monitoring progression to cirrhosis and liver-related clinical events in advanced patients. ELF is also widely used outside of the United States to determine the presence of F3, F4 fibrosis. Now let's put non-invasive assessments of liver fibrosis to work by looking at a case. We have a 57-year-old male who shows up in your waiting room with a history of type 2 diabetes and hypertension. He denies smoking, alcohol, or illicit drug use. You do a chronic liver disease workup, he's negative for viral hepatitis. Current medications include antihypertensives and diabetic medications. His BMI at 35.6 puts him squarely in the obese category. Current blood parameters of significance include an albumin and a platelet count at the lower limit of normal, a hemoglobin A1C that indicates not optimally controlled diabetes at 8.1%, and a mildly elevated AST and ALT. We plug in the appropriate information into the handy FIB4 calculator, and the result is 2.33, in the gray zone, indeterminate. Now what? So fortunately, we have multiple societies who have recently published screening algorithms for identifying advanced fibrosis related to non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. We're gonna take a look at a couple of the guidelines now. So this first guideline is from the American Gastroenterology Association, and we start off with their recommendation that primary care, endocrinology, gastroenterology, and obesity specialists should screen for NAFLD with advanced fibrosis. I completely agree with that statement. However, it's going to be individual according to provider how far you get into the screening before they hand off the patient for referral. At least we want them to screen. So indeed, the first step is identifying patients at risk. So risk includes two or more metabolic risk factors, the presence of type two diabetes, or steatosis on any imaging modality or elevated aminotransferases. Any of those risk factors and you move on to step two, which is obtaining a good history and laboratory tests, including CBC and liver function tests. Now I think all of the above specialists, including primary care, would move through step two with ease. It's the next step when we move on to calculating the FIB4, which may throw a little hitch in the whole algorithm. Not every provider is going to take the time in their 15-minute appointment when they have 20 other concerns to address to calculate a FIB4. But enough has been done. They've identified patients at risk, and they can hand the patient off to a specialist at that point if they prefer. However, some providers are going to move ahead and calculate the FIB4. If the FIB4 is less than 1.3, that patient can stay in their clinic because they're considered low risk for progressive disease. You shouldn't forget about the patient and they should definitely be reevaluated in two to three years or in the case of a change in their clinical circumstance. Now, if their FIB4 is between 1.3 to 2.67, as was the case in the story of the gentleman that we just reviewed, that patient is in the gray zone of indeterminate risk. It's recommended at that point the patient move on to a sequential non-invasive test. In this case, 
it's liver stiffness measurement with FibroScan. If the liver stiffness measurement is less than eight, that patient goes into the low risk category of just following in two to three years to make sure there's no progressive liver disease. If the patient is again in the gray zone with indeterminate risk and a liver stiffness measurement of between eight and 12, referral to a hepatologist is recommended and consideration of further non-invasive tests to risk stratify the patient and possibly even a liver biopsy to determine fibrosis stage is recommended. In our clinic, typically we would do additional non-invasive testing and implement lifestyle modifications. If the liver stiffness measurement is over 12, that is a high-risk individual for the presence of advanced fibrosis. So that person commands a referral to hepatology, and typically with someone who's at risk for advanced fibrosis, we implement hepatocellular surveillance with biannual imaging and AFP. We look at the labs, consider whether the patient is developing portal hypertension, consider endoscopy, and continue to follow this patient uh, very closely for potential progression of fibrosis to cirrhosis and all the complications that can come along with that. And we would also weigh in heavily on lifestyle modifications. So the next set of guidelines belong to the European Association for the Study of Liver Disease. They also have an algorithm for advanced fibrosis related to liver disease, including non-alcohol fatty liver disease. So the proposed use of the screening algorithm in patients who are observed in the primary care or outside the liver clinic setting. So these are patients who are typically found in the primary care office or in the endocrinology office and who are being screened for fatty liver disease. The FIB4 is used again in this algorithm and it's used in patients with metabolic cofactors to identify patients who may require referral to the specialty liver clinic. So we start off with patients who are at risk for chronic liver disease, and that's done by a quick check of the patient's liver risk factors for metabolic syndrome, for viral hepatitis, for excessive alcohol use, and familial history. If any factors other than metabolic cofactors or alcohol use are found, that patient is sent directly to the liver clinic for further evaluation. If the only associated risk factors are metabolic and or alcohol, which can coexist as we know, the patient proceeds to a FIB4. The FIB4 calculation, if it's less than 1.3, it's determined that the patient is low risk and no need for a referral is necessary. Lifestyle modifications are initiated and the patient is retested in one to three years. If, however, the FIB4 is greater than 1.3, that patient is categorized as intermediate to high risk, and a further non-invasive test is necessary to risk stratify the patient. The recommended non-invasive test that occurs next is liver stiffness measurement by transient elastography or fiber scan. If the fiber scan yields a result of less than eight kilopascals, the patient again ends in the low risk category where no referral is required and lifestyle modifications are initiated with a goal of retesting in one to three years to monitor for progression of liver disease. If, however, the fiber scan is greater than eight kilopascals, 
Then the patient proceeds to a third non-invasive test. In this case, it is a patented serum test or the ELF test, which is the only commercially available test in the U.S. currently. So if the patented test is not available, then you would refer to the hepatologist and consider liver biopsy. If you order the patented test, the ELF test per se, and it is in concordance with the liver stiffness measurement, then you have a high likelihood of a patient with advanced fibrosis stage three or four. If there's discordance between the ELF test and the liver stiffness measurement, then you could consider a liver biopsy to further clarify the patient's fibrosis status. So now we'll do a little bit of a deep dive into the imaging techniques that can assess both steatosis and fibrosis. We'll start off with ultrasound-based imaging, vibration-controlled transient elastography, most commonly used as the FibroScan. There are several other commercially available options, but we mostly see the use of FibroScan. It can assess both steatosis and fibrosis simultaneously. It's designed to explore a three cubic centimeter volume of liver tissue, which is about 100 times greater than what you get with a liver biopsy. And it uses a 50 hertz shear wave, which is induced from the tip of the FibroScan probe. We get a liver stiffness measurement, which correlates with fibrosis in kilopascals. If the wave moves slowly through the liver, it indicates a healthy liver. The faster the wave travels, the more likely the patient is to have fibrosis or cirrhosis. Liver stiffness can be used to infer the presence of fibrosis, but the specific cutoffs are not able to discriminate between individual fibrosis stages. So we really can't use FibroScan as a tool to stage fibrosis accurately, although it does have a very good negative predictive value. So if the FibroScan result is less than eight, you have a very high likelihood that the patient does not have significant fibrosis. In addition to liver stiffness, the FibroScan measures the controlled attenuation parameter, which gives you an estimate of steatosis in decibels per meter. A CAP score of greater than 280 is associated with significant steatosis. So now we'll move on to MRR technology. MRE, or MR elastography, uses a modified phase contrast pulse sequence to visualize rapidly propagating mechanical shear waves. Typically, they're delivered at around 60 hertz. Cross-sectional elastogram images are then created depicting the stiffness generated from the wave propagation information. On the left side of the slide, you can see a nice healthy liver that's non-fibrotic. As you move to the right through the various stages, zero, one, two, three, and finally to a fully cirrhotic liver. When we look at MRI, proton density fat fractionation, the MRPDFF exploits the difference in resonance frequencies of the protons in water and fat to provide estimates of tissue fat fraction. So on the left, again, a nice healthy liver without the presence of any steatosis, and on the far right, a very steatotic liver. So I'm happy to include this slide in the talk because it's significant in that other associations are finally recognizing the importance of NAFLD and the association with metabolic syndrome. And the guidelines are beginning to recommend screening for NAFLD and NASH with 
the odds of progressing to advanced fibrosis. In fact, the American Diabetes Association recommends in their current guidance that patients with type 2 diabetes or prediabetes and elevated liver enzymes, specifically the ALT, or fatty liver on ultrasound should be evaluated for the presence of non-alcoholic steatohepatitis and liver fibrosis. And the recommendation includes this screening on initial consult and then on an annual basis. So it takes a village to find these patients, screen them, and risk stratify them, and I think this is a good start. So what about the patients? We can't forget them, can we? So what is the number one symptom associated with non-alcoholic fatty liver disease and NASH? Well, the correct answer is no symptoms. While there are no specific symptoms associated with NASH, in this survey of 166 patients from around the world, the most commonly noted symptoms were fatigue, conditions associated with being overweight, and abdominal pain. So while most patients with NASH are completely unaware that they have the disease, when they're asked about it, they do admit to some significant complaints. So now let's take a look at components of lifestyle approach to management of non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. Because if we identify the patients, we risk stratify them, then we must do something about this to prevent progression. At this point, we don't have any FDA-approved medications for the treatment of NASH, but we know that lifestyle modifications make a difference, and they are the gold standard at this point for managing fatty liver disease. While lifestyle modifications may not be glamorous, it's important that we convince our patients that they're important because we know they work. It's just tough. So the most important thing when it comes to lifestyle management is control of the metabolic syndrome. So optimizing diabetes control, hypertension control, control of lipids is really important in preventing progression of patients who have non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. And then the lifestyle modifications come into play. Unfortunately, the lifestyle modifications are taking away the composition of the standard American diet, which is simple sugar and processed carbohydrates. So we're going to tell the patients to reduce their fructose intake, avoiding any sugary food or drinks, in addition, we're gonna ask them to take a look at the ingredients of their food and avoid processed carbohydrates as much as possible. The goal of energy restriction is a seven to 10% weight loss target, which has been shown in multiple studies to improve or even resolve NASH. And we have to remind patients that this is a marathon and not a sprint. So we need a long-term maintenance approach because this is a disease of a lifetime. You may improve the situation, but if you go back to old habits, it will come back to haunt you. So we also have to address control of daily alcohol intake. And if a patient is asking you how much alcohol is too much, likely they're drinking too much. Strictly, I would say no alcohol for anyone with fatty liver disease or NASH, but if you're going to go by the guidance, it's limiting to 30 grams for men and 20 grams for women per day. So we've taken away all the patient's fun. What are we left with? 
Well, you can let them drink coffee because studies have shown that coffee consumption at three to four cups today have a positive impact on liver health, including reducing inflammatory activity and possibly preventing fibrosis. So drink coffee. Um, <laughs> and it doesn't have to be expensive coffee because the study was done at the VA. So coffee is encouraged. When it comes to specific diets, you have to remember that the more restrictive the diet, the less likely the patient is to sustain their dietary habits. And so I like to meet my patient where they are. Yes, we can limit saturated fat intake. We can encourage low carbohydrate intake. But if your patient is fully restrictive, they're likely to eventually go off the diet and they may refine the weight that they've lost. So Mediterranean diet is probably the diet that has the most data behind it to support use in patients with non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. However, I would recommend that just advising your patient to reduce simple sugars and processed carbohydrates and eat real food is likely the gentler, kinder way into dietary modifications that may last a lifetime. Now we focus a lot on diet because that largely plays the biggest role in treating patients with NAFLD via lifestyle modifications, but physical activity is important as well. Now, if I took my patient who's been sitting on the couch for the majority of their adult life and told them that they needed to exercise 150 to 200 minutes a week at moderate intensity, they would look at me like I was crazy. And so again, meet the patient where they are. This is a patient who may march in place when watching commercials, or they may make a goal of walking to the mailbox and back every day. But by gradually increasing their physical activity, the goal is to replace fat with muscle, which will improve their insulin resistance. And that's the end game when we're talking about fatty liver disease and correcting that situation. So talk to your patient about what they're doing now and make gentle modifications that they're more likely to be successful with. In summary, NAFLD encompasses the entire spectrum of fatty liver disease, including NASH, the progressive form of the disease. NAFLD is associated with a variety of metabolic comorbidities, including obesity, type 2 diabetes, dyslipidemia, and the metabolic syndrome. It starts with chronic and excessive steatosis, which induces a cascade of lipotoxicity, inflammation, and hepatocellular injury, followed by fibrogenesis. NASH with fibrosis can progress to cirrhosis over time, which is a risk factor for hepatocellular carcinoma development. NAFLD continues to be a chronic liver disease that is increasing in prevalence. Globally, 25% of adults are suspected of having NAFLD. Consequently, 5-6% to 6 of adults worldwide potentially have NASH, the more progressive form of the disease. By 2030, the projected prevalence of NASH in the United States is expected to rise by over 60%. The current workup for NAFLD involves scores based on blood parameters and imaging techniques to help us risk stratify those patients most at risk for developing advanced fibrosis. Importantly, patients have a role in risk mitigation through lifestyle modifications, and it's important to get their buy-in as an important member of the healthcare team.